0: Hi.
2: Theory. Welcome to High Theory.
0: In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory.
2: I'm Sharunik Boshu.
0: And I'm Kim
2: Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself.
0: This fall, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast Network. If you are a podcaster or avid listener, we invite you to contribute, too. We are looking for presentations on podcasting in the humanities in all shapes and forms, on audiences, teaching, learning, equity, accessibility, knowledge production, and everything else.
2: The symposium will be held entirely virtually on October 15 and 16, 2021. Find details about the Humanities Podcast Network, as well as our full call for contributors for the symposium at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org.
0: Welcome to High Theory. Today, I am speaking with Julie Beth Napolin. And she's going to tell us about resonance. Julie Beth, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Hey, Kim. Thanks for (laughs) having me in this virtual
1: space. My name is Julie Beth Napolin, and I'm a professor of digital humanities at the New School. And I'm also the author of The Fact of Resonance Modernist Acoustics in Narrative Form, a book that I published last year with Fordham. What the heck is resonance? It's a difficult question to answer. And on the one hand, it is this material or physical fact of sound, which is that things vibrate, things resonate. Resonance is a sympathetic vibration. So when one thing is vibrating at a similar frequency, it will start to resonate. So our instruments resonate, you know, I'll pluck a guitar string and that action of me plucking makes the hollow body of my guitar begin to fill with sound. The thing that's always drawn me to this idea of resonance is actually its materiality. This fact that in order to consider it, you are always considering what is more than one, what is more than itself. That Resonance is premised on this resonance, that something is happening not only in itself, but somewhere else. So that materiality is what links it to a very powerful ethical idea, which is that we you know we aren't just ourselves, that we are more than one, that the fundamental unit of being is not one but two. And resonance proves that.
0: I love that idea that the basic fact of existence is not one, but two. Yeah. So tell me, how exactly does resonance show us that?
1: In some ways for me to answer a question like that, because I'm a literature person, I begin with language. Yeah. And one of the idiomatic expressions that has always appealed to me is that resonates with me. And so I started thinking about this question, why is it with me and not at me or for me. And there is something about the witness of it that indicates that there's more than one existence or entity or being at play. That when you say something, my mind or myself, my body becomes a resonating chamber for that idea. And I discover in a concrete way, what I didn't know that I thought or held to be true before. So you, your words have made me resonate. They've become a kind of vessel, if you will, for those words. And the way I describe that vesseling of myself in its truth is resonance. Jean Luc Nancy, who's a French philosopher I admire quite a bit, he has a book called Listening, and he makes the point that actually resonance doesn't show, it doesn't appear. It's not a thing that's in the world. You could say that it's an event. So, does resonance show us this fact? No, it's not a showing in a precise sense, but I think that this. Fundamental fact of being as two makes itself felt in resonance. Yeah. Whether that's music or someone else telling you something or even reading something. And in my book, I claim that silent words on the page do resonate.
0: I know a lot of people who think about how words on the page evoke visual images. But Mm. I feel like very rarely do people talk about words on the page evoking Oral experiences.
1: Eudora Welty, who's a Mississippi writer, Mm -hmm. she has a little volume called On Writing. And she has a meditation there where she basically says, when I'm writing, there is something like a reader voice that I hear, quote unquote, in my head. It's very intimate. It's not my mother's voice. It's not even my voice, but it's intimate. And it's something that I know. And... It's against that voice or through that voice inwardly that she gauges the correctness of the words that she's putting on the page. And Toni Morrison talks a lot about this, too, in the experience of writing and reading, that there's a cacophonous experience of reading where you're hearing these voices and it's not just voices it's phantom sounds too but it is true that in the history of literary criticism and even just kind of talking about reading in a colloquial way we've tended to privilege the image building function of reading that i imagine imagistically a world but i I don't think that that's necessarily true or a complete way of talking about it
0: how can we think about using resonance
1: my first response to you is to say we don't use resonance. Resonance uses us. Nice. <laughs> in part because of this vesseling notion that I was talking about a moment ago where there is this thing that exceeds me and maybe even it's been drifting in the world long before I existed. You know, a lot of Sufi musicians, for example, Inayat Khan, who wrote the mysticism of sound and music, he believes That every word that has ever been spoken, every sound that has ever been made is still resonating cosmically. And Toru Takamitsu, who's a Japanese film composer, he made a lot of the music for the Kurosawa films. He also believes that composing is just tuning into the sounds that are already there. So you're not making anything, you are becoming a sound carrier. This is a word that Damo Suzuki, who's a Japanese freak sound musician, uses. He will get a band together anywhere he is in town to play his music and he'll call them his sound carriers. So this is just my way of saying that resonance is there before I arrive. So the question then of how do I use resonance is actually, for me, becomes rather quickly a question of ethical and epistemological bearing. In other words, how do I comport myself towards that resonance? How do I become open to it? How
0: do I not foreclose its movement? I guess it frames the question of audience really interestingly, right? Ooh,
1: yeah. Which is itself a kind of ethical question. Yeah. Um, And maybe the thing that you're carrying is very burdensome. Maybe it's a weight. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. something you have not asked to carry that has been thrust upon you by historical forces, by economic forces, politics, what have you. So we shouldn't be too wistful about this carrying as though it's some breezy thing drifting along its way. It can be quite heavy. And, you know, maybe you don't want to carry it across to everyone. To invoke a visual metaphor, I I love Edouard Glissant, the Caribbean philosopher, his notion of the right to opacity, the right to with. Hold the right not to be visible or to be transparent. And I think there's probably a sonic analog to that the right not to resonate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. To mute sounds. Mm -hmm. Is there a word for that when you stop the body of the guitar from vibrating?
1: Yeah, you dampen. For example, that's one of the main skills involved in playing the piano is when you press the pedals, you're dampening the strings and you're controlling through that dampener its resonance. So sometimes you'll want a sound to strike quickly and abruptly and you'll dampen it quickly. Other times you'll want it to be released for a long time so you won't dampen it. So yeah, dampening, I think, would be the word to use.
0: Yeah, although a right to dampen sounds a little bit squishy, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not the the loveliest expression, is it?
0: (laughs) Maybe this is a good point for me to ask you my third question, which is, how will resonance save the world?
1: (laughs) The thing that I love about sound and resonance more specifically is that it's about making space. So when we think about a resonant room, we're thinking about a room that is expansive where the sound can travel. There's something about resonance that is about making space. And if we're wanting to talk about existing ethically with each other, it's about making space. And this is actually a phrase that's used quite a bit in social justice. And when we're holding the room, We're allowing dissenting voices or ambiguous voices, voices of discomfort to make themselves known, even if they don't know why, or it's not towards a certain end, we just make space for them. And I think resonance, (laughs) whether it'll save the world, I don't know, but it does make space. And there's this Greek word that is really important to me in my book, which is dekomai, which means to admit or to make space. But it also means to lend an ear to. Huh. And from dekomai, we get coreo from which we derive choreography. Mm-hmm. We get the word chorus. We also get doxa, which is opinions. So it's a really interesting word, but choreo is to make space for another to make room for another by withdrawing and for me that is the ethical imperative is to make space for another by withdrawing and there is something about the materiality of resonance that teaches that because that is what it is (laughs) so to confront it is to confront that principle of making space
0: well that sounds like that sounds like a really great note to end on actually Thank you so much for coming and talking with us.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was
0: wonderful to have this chance to to speak to you. And thank you for listening to High Theory.
2: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
0: Sharanik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio.
2: You can also find us at hightheory.net.
0: We hope you have a highly theoretical day.